turn in the word to Hebrews chapter 4 as we continue this journey through this book together. It's an amazing journey, and once again, we will cover one verse today. (laughs) Trust me, there's a lot there, and there's probably more than we even have time to get to. We'll be reading Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16, and we'll focus on verse 16. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. It's the word of the Lord. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the blessing of being able to study it together, to talk about it, to meditate on it, and to respond to it. Father, be with us now. Speak through me. Let your word speak loud and clear. Let your spirit come and convict. Let it limit distractions. Let the spirit work in us to shake us up if we are idle. If we have hardness of heart, Lord, may your spirit awaken our souls. If we're facing discouragement, Lord, encourage us through your word and strengthen the weak. We pray all of these because of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want to ask you a question to start things off today. Simple, but important. How's your prayer life? Simple question, right? No, seriously though. How is your prayer life? I know I've asked that question many times, and I've been asked that question many times, and And I've received all kinds of answers, but I've never come across anybody who says, it's just amazing. It's incredible. I am constantly in prayer. I think about it so often. I'm so focused. I remember everything I was supposed to pray for. I just, I'm so inclined to prayerfulness. I've never heard that. If you are that way, please come talk to me. You should be preaching right now, uh, if that's the case. But what I most often hear is what I usually say myself. When I hear, how is your prayer life? I think, I really struggle with that. But I might, I might struggle with that more than almost anything else in my Christian life. It's a consistent part of my life. I, I love praying. It's a blessing. But I wish I was more prayerful. I wish I was more focused in prayer. I wish I was not distracted. I wish I was more disciplined in prayer. I wish it was more of a delight when I got up to pray. Well, why is that for us? The Bible clearly says that prayer is an important part of our lives, important part of our corporate worship. Why is prayer such a struggle for Christians? I think we can give a lot of reasons for that. Maybe more like excuses. We live in probably one of the most distracted and busy cultures there is, right? 
And we live in a world where we believe that technology is the solution to everything. And the instinct when we're sick is not to go to our knees and pray, but to get an MRI. I'm not against MRIs. I've had, had a few. I'm thankful for them. But the MRI is not where we'll find ultimate solutions to our greatest need. We're also very disconnected from our daily needs because our fridges are full of food. And if they're not, we take out our phones and hit a button and we'll have food at our door in five minutes. It's the world we live in. And if all these distractions and difficulties and things in this world weren't enough, we also face inward difficulties, don't we? The constant struggle and battle from without and also from our sinful, broken natures make it almost impossible to pray. And what usually happens in the midst of all of these struggles is that prayer merely becomes a task, a chore, just just another thing to do in a busy day, or it becomes just discipline. And look, I'm not against discipline. You've heard that old cliche that, oh, Christianity is, is not a religion, it's a relationship. Can we just agree that that's stupid? <laughs> Can't think of a better word than stupid, but it's true. That's not true. We all know that relationships take religious practice, right? You do things repeatedly to maintain those relationships. It doesn't matter if I'm talking about my wife or my teeth. <laughs> I spend time with my wife and I brush my teeth because I want a good relationship with both. Right? That's the way it works. We know that that's true. It takes discipline and religiosity to maintain relationships. And prayer, discipline is such an important part of prayer. But so is delight. And sometimes it can just become discipline. But prayer was never meant to be just discipline. Discipline can lead to delight. But prayer was meant to be this privilege this blessing, this wonderful gift to commune with an almighty God, to have access to the throne rooms of heaven because of the work of Christ, to go into the presence of God and make honest requests of Him and to know that He will provide what we actually need. It's such a gift, but it's so easy to forget, isn't it? Well, I hope to remind us of some of those realities this morning through the book of Hebrews. I want to talk about gospel-based prayer this morning. Gospel-based, gospel-fueled, gospel-empowered, and Christ-exalting prayer. The book of Hebrews talks greatly about that in verse 16. But before we even get to that verse, let's remind ourselves where we are in the book of Hebrews. We've been going through this book for a while now. We've got to the end of chapter 4. Please remember that Hebrews was written to an audience that was coming out of Judaism that these were Hebrew Christians that walked away from their, their Jewish roots and became Christians, and they were facing persecution from their, their old Jewish community and also probably from the Romans. They battled, they were strong at first, but after a while, they grew weary. They thought about throwing in the towel and going back to the law, back to the prophets, back to the temple, back to these outmoded ways of communing with God. And the writer of the book of Hebrews has been encouraging them, no, hold fast your confession. Fix your minds on Jesus. He's better than anything you will ever find in Judaism because all of those things point to him. And as as he's just been dismantling everything that they would just want to run to, he's also been exalting the person and work of Christ, hasn't he? That Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses, he's better than Aaron, and most lately, he's better than the high priests of the Old Covenant. 
That's what we see at the end of chapter 4. And Jason covered this the last couple weeks. This will be a topic we're going to focus on for a long time. Chapters 5 through 10 are about the high priest. So we might be meditating on this for years, which is such a blessing. But this passage is about Jesus' high priestly ministry. That he is the great high priest who's entered heaven, the holy of holies, to make atonement for our sins. And he's also the sympathetic high priest who took on human nature who understands us because he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And so he becomes the perfect high priest, the one to represent us and the one to make lasting and final atonement for sin. And then verse 16 is this response to Jesus' high priestly ministry. Because Jesus is the great high priest, pray. Does it seem strange to anybody? Not like, storm the gates of hell and and go overseas and plant a church. We need to do those things. I'm glad we are doing those things. But the instinct when you have access to God is to go to God in prayer. I love that. It couldn't be more simple. So we're going to talk about gospel-based prayer this morning. And I want to break our discussion into three parts. They all start with P, so a little alliteration here. Um, Just worked out that way. So we'll talk about the privilege of prayer. The privilege of prayer to draw near to this throne of grace. The possibility of prayer. And then the practice of prayer. The privilege of prayer. The the possibility of prayer. How did this privilege come about? And then the practice of prayer, which is how do we approach this throne? When do we approach the throne and why do we approach the throne? That's what we'll be talking about today. So first, the privilege of prayer in verse 16. Let's read that again together. Let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace. Let's start by focusing at the object for this command. This resort for prayer, which is the throne. Right? Thrones are such an important part of Scripture. There's throne room scenes all over the Bible, especially in Revelation. But hopefully we know that thrones are this, this picture, this image that convey power and authority. And I know, especially as Americans, we kind of dismiss thrones. We don't like that because of our history, but we can't understand the Bible apart from those things. The thrones have to do with judgment and sovereignty. Here, let me show you. Hold your hand in Hebrews 4 and turn to Isaiah 6. Turn to Isaiah 6. Probably one of the most famous throne room scenes in the Bible. Probably one that would come to mind as these Hebrew Christians are reading this. And they think of throne of grace. This is the throne that they might think about. Hebrews 6, verse 1 through 5. Let's read this together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. It's quite a scene, isn't it? Notice how Isaiah responds. He doesn't say, Cool. He doesn't say, interesting. I should should take notes on this for later. He doesn't even say, 
it's about time. About time I was welcome in here. I have a lot to talk to you about. What does he say? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Brothers and sisters, that is the proper response to the throne of God. Not pride, apathy, irreverence, but fear, humility, brokenness. Because look, if you understand the holiness of God in our own depravity, you know that the only thing that we deserve to hear at the throne is depart from me. The only thing we deserve to get at the throne is judgment and wrath. Turn back to Hebrews. In light of these things, this throne imagery, this power in the story, the fear that that might bring to these Hebrews, look at what it says. It's not just any throne, but a throne of grace. A throne of grace. I, don't, I think this is, this is probably more like an oxymoron to a lot of these Christians. I mean, you guys remember what oxymorons are, right? This, two words just don't go together. A jumbo shrimp, slow racehorse, right? Throne in power, yeah. Throne in sovereignty, throne in judgment, yeah, those are great. Throne of grace? This doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't make sense to these Christians that have walked away from Judaism and years of temple practice. But there is one throne of grace, or rather throne of mercy in the Old Testament. That's clearly about mercy, and that's the mercy seat of God. You can read later, there's a lot about it in Exodus 25. But in Exodus 25, there's this description of the lid to the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies. Remember, it was to be covered in gold. And on the top, there were to be this seraphim, or this cherubim, excuse me, that the wings would be outspread so that it covered this mercy seat. Sounds like Isaiah 6, doesn't it? And these wings would be covering the mercy seat, and it would be put in the, the Holy of Holies, and God's presence was to rest in that place, like a throne. It was to rest in there as the, the symbolic representation of the presence of God. But there was one big problem. The same problem that happened in Isaiah. Nobody was worthy to go in there. Nobody was worthy to go to the throne of grace. There was an exception made for one person a year. One priest to go in on the Day of Atonement. Only after shedding blood for his own sins. And he would go in and get a glimpse of the mercy seat through the smoke of the incense, through the, the wing of the cherubim, and he would, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for sin. So only one person once a year got to even go in there. And in a sense, there was mercy. God's wrath was appeased, but it didn't last. As the passage we read earlier, they had to go in again and again and sprinkle more blood to appease God's wrath. And the bigger problem was the people of God could never go in. They could never, they were stuck in the outer courts. It wasn't God with his people. The high priest would go in to represent God, and that was as, as good as it got. And that's why this next part of this command is just insanity. If throne of grace didn't make sense, then what he asked them to do to the throne of grace is just nuts. Look at what it says. Let us then with confidence do what? Draw near to the throne of grace. Look, these are Hebrews. They know their Bibles. They know how the priestly ministry worked. They know that this language is not reserved for them. 
It's for the tribe of Aaron, the Levi, the priests. They're the only ones that get to go in there. They're the only ones that get to go in there after a lot of rituals, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of really difficult things, and only once a year. And they definitely know what what happens when you approach God in an improper way. If you remember in Sinai, one of the greatest moments when Moses goes up the hill to meet with God, and the mountain is shaking, and there's smoke and thunder and lightning, what are the people told? You don't belong here. Don't go near. Not even your animals, or you will die. And they're taught this lesson again. You remember Nadab and Abihu? In Leviticus 10, the sons of Aaron, who disregarded the law, didn't worship God as he called them to, and mixed the incense wrong, and God killed them. Or Uzzah, who, when the Ark of the Covenant slipped and was, trying, and was falling, reached out his hand to catch the Ark, assuming for a second that the ground that it was going to touch was more dirty than him. And in his pride, God killed him. For centuries, the people of God have been taught that God doesn't mess around with sin. He is holy. You don't casually go into his presence. And you know, if a Jew was able to actually see the mercy seat, by some miracle, the curtain, you know, through the curtain or something, they got to see the mercy seat, their instinct wouldn't be to draw near. It would be to back up. It would be to draw away. And that's a right instinct, brothers and sisters. We don't belong in the presence of a holy God. But the writer of the book of Hebrews calls all people, no matter who you are and what you've done, to draw near to the throne of grace. Now, I don't, I don't think we really get the weight of this. I don't really think we understand the shock value of this. Maybe if we were traveling to Jerusalem every year to make atonement for sin having to pick the best of our flock to, to give to the priest and seeing the actual bloodshed happen and trusting that the grace of God was good enough to have this priest go in in my place to make me right with God. And even though we don't have that visual, I think we can get a taste of it when we really consider our own sinfulness against the holiness of God. And just consider for a minute how terrifying it would be to approach a holy God. To approach the God that's holy, holy, holy. Infinitely excellent and above everything in creation. Complete, completely separate from all sin and evil. And not only is he holy, he's also just. There's not one sin that he lets slide. There's not one sin that he doesn't have perfect hatred and wrath of. And he won't punish as it deserves. And if that wasn't enough, you remember what Hebrews just told us. This God knows everything. He's holy and just, and He knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. No creature is hidden from His sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him who we must give an account. Would you be ready to draw near to this God? I don't know about you, but just considering the sin in my life this week alone, I want to run. As far away as I can. Get a hold of Jonah's travel agent and just take off. Because that's the right instinct. But the writer is saying, draw near. I know you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. I thought this was supposed to be a privilege. Did you say privilege? Is it the wrong word? Well, no. Trust me on this. 
We can't see the invitation to draw near to the throne of grace as a privilege until we see how much we don't deserve it. We can't see the blessing of the throne of grace until we realize that we don't belong there. And the one thing that turns this fear-inducing invitation into a privilege is the work of our great high priest. And that's what we're going to talk about next, the possibility of prayer. How has Jesus made this possible for us to enter into the Holy of Holies? So let's look at 16 one more time. Let us then, then, tiny word, big meaning. That word then is actually also translated therefore in some translations. And that then is all the therefores focuses us back to what was said before. It could really point all the way back to Hebrews 1, but this then is specifically pointing to Hebrews 4, 14, and 15. The verses we've been talking about. The great high priestly ministry of Christ. Saying, draw near to the throne of grace because Jesus is your great high priest. What has Jesus done to get us into the throne of grace? To give us access to this? Well, first of all, he brings us to God. Here, let's look at verse 14 again. Verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Remember, that's talking about Jesus' ascension. Raising from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father. And notice the contrast here already. Jason talked about this a couple weeks ago, but the high priests of old could go into the symbolic temple, the earthly temple. But Jesus, in his perfection, in his holiness, can draw into the very holy of holies in heaven. The true temple of God to give us access to the place that really can make final atonement for sin. He has access to God. How is that possible? Verse 14 again. He passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, his human name, the Son of God, his title. He is fully God and fully man. He's the perfect representative. Perfect, worthy to be in the presence of God, but also took on our nature and can represent us better than all the priests of old. So Jesus knows how to get us to God. He's opened the way. How? Well, he's made atonement for us. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. What's that talking about? That means he took on flesh. He took on humanity. As it says in Hebrews 2, he took on our very nature. Not in the sin nature itself. He took on perfect humanity as Adam was in the garden. And what did he do? But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Oh, there's one massive difference between Jesus and Adam. He didn't fall. He's sinless. Big difference between Jesus and us. Jesus and the high priest of old. He's perfect. And so he not only goes into the holy of holies as the perfect high priest, but also as the perfect sacrificial lamb. He becomes both the sacrifice and the priest offering the sacrifice. And through his perfect life and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension, all of this includes his high priestly work. He's made full and lasting atonement for sin, just like we read in Hebrews 10 earlier. 
After this final work, this great accomplishment, this atonement that is lasting for eternity. Do you remember what Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 1 says? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. If you remember when Chad talked about this months ago now, there's no place in the temple for the priest to sit down because their work was never done. People kept on sinning. They had to keep coming to the mercy seat to make atonement for sin. But Jesus, when his work was done, he sat down. This beautiful picture that there's, there's nothing left to add. There's nothing left to earn. There's nothing left to prove. I don't need to come tomorrow and offer a little bit more bloodshed to pay for my sins. It is 100% finished and complete in Jesus. And that's why even the realities in the heavenly sanctuaries were also reflected on earth, weren't they? In the great temple, the veil was torn in two. The mercy seat exposed for the world to see. The place that only the high priest could see for years ripped in two. The, the mercy seat was seen and I bet the priest just ran out of there. But it's this beautiful picture of access to God. The veil wasn't taken down and put away to be stored until we mess up and then put back up. There wasn't a small hole cut in the, the veil so that only a couple people could get through. Just a few more than the high priest. No, it was ripped in two. This beautiful picture of completed work and access to the throne of grace. And now because of Jesus and his high priestly ministry, we can draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near without fear of judgment and wrath. Draw near because it's a privilege. And that's what prayer is. It's not merely a spiritual discipline. It's not merely just calling out for help for our God. It's approaching the throne of God in Christ. The throne which we once found judgment and wrath and condemnation has become the throne of grace because of Jesus. The throne that caused us to fear and to, to draw back is the throne that we are drawn to to receive grace and mercy because of Jesus. And where we once came before our Creator and our Judge, and we should hear, depart from me, now we hear, come to me. All you who are labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Do you understand what this means? God not only says it's not just okay to come to me, I want you to come to me. And because of Jesus, he's not just our creator and our judge, but our Father. Isn't that the way that Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, we get to call him Father. Without Jesus, all we get to call him is judge. And because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, we get to call out to him for help as Abba, Father. Because Jesus called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Prayer is an astounding privilege that came at a high cost. An unbelievable gift from God because it's an invitation to talk to our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, our great High Priest. Hope now you can see what a privilege prayer is. We've seen the privilege of prayer, the possibility of prayer. 
Let's talk about the practice of prayer. The practice of prayer. What does gospel-based prayer even look like? This verse actually helps us greatly in that. I'm going to point to four things briefly. This is just going to be applications and responses. Ways to kind of work out these realities that Hebrews gives us. So four things. First of all, we draw near to the throne of grace corporately. We draw near to the throne of grace corporately. Look at 16 one more time. First two words say what? Let us, then with confidence, draw near. Notice it doesn't say, let me, or hey you, draw near. It says, let us draw near. It's actually plural. You may have noticed this. There's a lot of let us in the book of Hebrews, especially in chapter 4. 4.11 says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that we may not fall by some sort of disobedience. 4.14, the verses before, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And of course, let us, in verse 16, draw near. What's the writer doing with these let us passages? Well, I think he's doing two things. One, like any good preacher, he's preaching to himself. He's not above his need for a Savior. He needs the throne of grace just like the rest of us. So he's exhorting himself to draw near to the throne of grace because of the realities of Jesus. But I think there's something bigger going on there. I think that what's going on here is there's a corporate sense of obedience here, a togetherness. This is actually an exhortation to corporate prayer, to draw near to the throne of grace on behalf of the whole body and with the whole body. Now, don't get me wrong. Individual prayer is is very important. It's a very important part of our life. And we so often emphasize that in our culture far more than corporate prayer. But there's a togetherness in Hebrews that we so often overlook. And drawing near to the, the throne of grace is a corporate privilege. Like we see in Acts. Acts 2 says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And what do we see when Peter gets put in prison? People gather to pray together. When James is put in prison, they gather and pray together. This is an exhortation and a corporate calling to come together in prayer. Please notice the privilege here. Such an amazing privilege that before it was the high priest by himself saying, okay, I'm going to go in there, you stay back. You stay away, trust me, I'll make atonement for you. Now, because of the way open in Jesus Christ, it's like, let's go to the the throne of grace together. Let's go there in prayer together. Because we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We belong in the presence of God because of Jesus, our great high priest. I know this can sound complicated, but it's really simple. You can do this whether you're 8 or 80. It looks like on on a long trip home turning off the radio, putting the phone away, turning the the video games or the movies off and saying, let's spend some time in prayer together. Let's see how God is working in our lives. Let's rejoice in the gospel together and the evidence of grace. This looks like asking tough questions of each other, finding out what our real needs are, praying for each other. And you know what? Maybe it's, it's saying, you know, I'm probably going to forget later. So can we pray now? do so together or maybe it's just 
planning and working a little bit more on Saturday night so that you have time to go to the prayer meeting on Sunday. You have time to join with the saints to worship our God in light of the gospel, our great high priest, and draw near to the throne of grace together. Oh, it's such a blessing. I'm so thankful for those times together, aren't you? To hear the little kids praying, singing, to hear the needs that you didn't even know were were needs being lifted up and being lifted up yourself and then rejoicing together when God grants the grace to fulfill those needs. Oh, corporate prayer is a beautiful privilege. And I pray that even our corporate prayer meetings never just become one more thing at the end of the week. That we never forget the privilege to draw near the throne of grace. So we draw near corporately. We also draw near confidently. Confidently or boldly. Look at verse 16 again. Let us then with confidence. With confidence. Now please notice this confidence word is kind of got a bad name in our world. Confidence does not mean pride. It does not mean arrogance. It's not presumptuously or arrogantly or casually approaching God's throne. No, I'm just going to throw a prayer up to the big guy and, and help me find my keys. That's not what he's talking about. And this is not confidence in ourself, first of all. It's confidence in the work of our great high priest. That we belong there because of Jesus. But this word confidence also means confidence in speech. That may be what you guys are wondering. I don't see prayer anywhere in this verse. Where did you get prayer? Well, this word boldness actually has to do with outspokenness, frankness, plainness of speech, honesty. In fact, one commentator said, this will be a word that a king might use to ask their citizens to share their opinion in in their courts before their throne. In essence, I think a great translation would be to speak freely. To speak freely to God Almighty. Just think about that for a second. Draw near to the throne of grace because of Christ and speak freely. Speak your mind. This is, a, this is an invitation to go into the presence of God Almighty as boldly and as confidently as Christ Himself. To go in and be treated like a son rather than an object of wrath. To go in and expect provision from a father that loves us. How about you? But that, that almost sounds blasphemous. It just feels wrong in so many levels. But this is reality in Christ. Charles Wesley said it so well Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Boldness and confidence to have our needs met before God. So we draw near corporately. We draw near confidently. We can draw near continuously. This one's a little bit more subtle, but look at verse 16 one more time. When it says, let us draw near, that's really one word in Greek. It's one word and actually is a a present word. It's actually a continuous word. This idea is that you have unlimited access to the Father. This is not just a one-time deal. You got one shot to make it count. Make sure you say the right things. Got to say just the right words or come in just the right way like we normally would have to come to most royalty in our world, right? No, you have unlimited, unfettered access to God. So come continuously, repeatedly, regularly to speak your mind to God Almighty. 
You don't have to cleanse yourself anymore. Jesus is taking care of that. You don't have to go to a certain location and, and face a certain way. You can have access to the throne of grace in Christ anywhere, anytime, for any reason. So draw near to him, and God will really listen. He's not just going to be checking his phone the whole time, like we would. He'll not turn us away. I'm so convicted at times when I feel like I'm doing really important work, and I tell my kids, not now. God never says, don't bother me. Never says, not now. And he never says, that's one sin too many. I know we like to think that sometimes, that if, if God saw us just metaphorically coming to confess that sin one more time, he would just roll his eyes and be like, let me guess. It's not the way our Father treats us. Because Christ has paid for every sin that we've ever done and ever will do. And as Richard Sibbs says, there is more grace in God than there is sin in us. So come corporately, confidently, continuously, and lastly, Come dependently. This is the last part of the verse. Draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, please notice how passive this is. Receive and find. Does that sound familiar? Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find Brothers and sisters, this is the language of prayer, isn't it? And the language here is almost as if help is already prepared for you. Because it is. In Christ. Seek the throne. Go into the presence of God. Because help is ready and waiting for you. And what do we receive? We receive help. Do you need help? Our confessions say we do. Our Bibles say we do. We even like to say, you know what? I don't have one heartbeat, one breath apart from Almighty God. But our planners may say differently. The way we deal with life, the way we struggle through life, the way we try to independently and sovereignly run our world says differently. Until sin and this world catches up to us. And by the grace of God, our frailty, our dependence is actually exposed. But we come for help. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I, I cling. And what do we get? We get mercy, help, and grace. Undeserved favor. We receive these things. Now these have kind of a, a dual meaning here. We definitely receive grace and mercy of salvation. We go to the throne of grace for the gift of faith. For the gift of redemption, for the gift of adoption, we enter into the holy holies because of Christ. For the gift of salvation, but we also go to the throne for daily provision, for daily bread, for working out that salvation. And in context here, that's what these Hebrew Christians really need, right? We all need the grace of salvation continually, repeatedly. We go to the throne of grace repenting our whole life. But God is good, and he also provides exactly what we need to keep persevering. To trust the Lord, to be saved into the end. To fight the battle of faith against unbelief. To not fall short of not entering God's rest. To having our heart and our ugliness exposed. God gives us grace and mercy when? 
in time of need. Isn't that wonderful news? God doesn't just give us this this thing, this substance of grace and mercy and says, all right, spend wisely. Grace and mercy isn't just a, it's not even just a thing. God is gracious. God is merciful. So what he's saying here is, I'm going to show up in your time of need. I'm going to come when you draw near to the throne of grace, and I'm going to give you grace and mercy in your time of need. I offer you myself. That's the gift of drawing near to the throne of grace. What a tremendous blessing, gift, privilege this is. To draw near to the throne of grace corporately, confidently, continuously, dependently, knowing that we will receive exactly what we need. Grace and mercy for salvation, grace and mercy to persevere, to fix our minds on Jesus, all because of our great high priest and his finished work. Let us never hesitate to draw near to the throne of grace. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, what a gift. What a blessing it is to know that because Jesus has accomplished everything we possibly needed in this world, because he has claimed victory over sin and the flesh and the devil, because of his perfection given to us by faith, Lord, we are welcomed into your presence, no longer in fear, no longer in judgment, but in kindness, in adoption, to receive grace and mercy, exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. Oh, Father, help us to delight in this gift and run to you in prayer. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.